healthcare. It happens here, and it finishes here. Two men enter, one man leaves. Nearly a two-word review just said, shit sandwich. I will roll the record up to the last minute. Welcome back to the basement, fellow music lovers. You are now tuning in to yet another exciting adventure with us here on Chunky Glasses, the podcast. I am your host, Kevin, and our president. Donald J. Trump sadly is a racist. Uh, why do I bring that up? Today's a day. It's Martin Luther King Jr. Day. Today we set aside to honor, uh, undeniably, the greatest champion of the civil rights movement. He's a man of peace, a man of wisdom, a man of vision, uh, and he was assassinated for that. And simple belief that all people are created equal, and apparently that's too much to take. Uh, it was too much to take in 1968, and uh, sadly, it's too much to take in 2018. Now, uh, you would have thought that we got our shit together, but nope, right now, sitting in the White House as a dude who stands in direct opposition to that legacy and uh, thrives on hatred, on sick, and ugly classifications of human beings, and really contempt for uh, the world around us. But we're not here to talk about that. Uh, we're going to celebrate today. We're going to celebrate the legacy of Dr. King, and uh, specifically because this is a music podcast, we're going to we're going to actually uh, talk about the music that informed Dr. King that was around the civil rights movement that he might have heard. Uh, some of it from his own camp, his direct advisors, and uh, and it is a. Uh, I will say this is I think the favorite my favorite thing that we've ever done here. Um, we knew going into it what we were going to do and it turned into something else and uh, I hope it comes across as powerful as it was sitting down here in the basement um, but joining me down here uh, for this episode were Mr. Marcus K. Dowling, he's always here, uh, Eduardo is down here, and uh, Timothy Ann Burnside from the uh, National Museum of African American History and Culture and over the course of about two hours we're going to run through some stuff you probably are very familiar with and some stuff you might not be too familiar with. And it's all uh, relates back to music, that sort of eternal eternal timekeeper in our souls. So that's what we're doing, and uh, I hope you guys enjoy this. If you, uh, you want to join in the conversation here, you can uh, leave a comment after this on the site, or you can email us at podcastjunkieglasses.com. Uh, this is something I learned a lot doing this. this is some, I think everybody down here learned a lot doing this, and I think we'd like to learn more. So please uh, engage, and uh, more so than ever uh, today. You know, when you go out today into the world, after you listen to this or while you listen to this, you know, you really be good to your ears, but but make sure you're better to your people, and that means all people. So with all that out of the way, I think my friends are waiting for me down in the basement. So let's head on down there uh, to spend some time uh, getting educated, talking about Martin Luther King and the music of civil rights.
Beautiful. Uh, you guys ready? Yes. Yeah. And stuff. I, I don't know. Like I said, I don't know how the we're going to do this. What, what, what exactly we're doing, but uh, we are down here uh, for a little MLK special. Martin Luther King Jr. for MLK Day. Uh, this is um, if you're from Virginia. Let's start with the bad shit. Uh, for years, if Look you were with from... a narrow segment here, Kevin, yeah, I know, I know. It's, yeah. happening. it's already if going you, in. If you're from Virginia, for years this was uh, Lee Jackson King Day. Oh, that's right. And, oh, shit. And, that's right. And as we've, you know, we talked a lot about uh, civil rights. Our friend Ab is is a up and coming civil rights leader. Could not. No, Ab, we're not going to not call you a civil rights leader because and, you're a civil rights leader. And, and, and could sadly not make this podcast. And, uh, and instead, we, we leveled up. We got some like tour guide from, from the, some museum. Called, I don't know. Are they not called docents? Is docents? That- <laughs> uh, this, this Timothy Ann Burnside oh, down here. How's your tour mom? Tour guide Tim- extraordinaire. How, how's your mom, Timothy? Mom's great. Mom's that's, great. That's awesome. She sends hello. Um, but but we wanted to we wanted to talk about. Uh, Take take a sort of time out from talking about like the hip new music or or raging against the scene as we as we recently did <laughs> way more likely Ooh, yeah. Yeah. as as recently did and and talk about not just why uh, this is so important why the work you do Timothy is so important um, but also the the uh, power of music that we understand it to be uh, and and how this may be influenced. Uh, King himself and the people around him. In fact, some of the people around him were were did amazing music and, and did that. But uh, it's going to be sort of a little playlist style. I, I want to start with before we get into a track, though, at why I wanted to get into this because he, he read this. This is at the uh, Berlin's first jazz festival in 1964. This is right about when the wall is coming up and the, and everything. You know, it was post World War II, obviously, and uh, and somebody asked him to write this intro and his take on music was was essentially this the god has wrought many things out of oppression he has endowed his creatures with the capacity to create and from this capacity has flowed the sweet songs of sorrow and joy that have allowed man to cope with his environment and many different situations jazz speaks for life the blues tell the story of life's difficulties and if you think for a moment you will realize that they take the hardest realities of life and put them into music only to come out with some new hope or sense of triumph this is triumphant music. Those words, as for me, are as important as any words he ever spoke. Uh, it, I think it connects his faith. It connected uh, what he was doing for his people and all people. Uh, make that clear. It is for all people. Uh, if we can't get over this shit, like it's not gonna, st- we're not gonna be around. <laughs> um, but um, there's a fifty-fifty chance we just won't be around. Period. Okay. In the near yeah. future. So. Um. But uh. But yeah. It and and this was a, this was a guy. He was a minister, but he was also very connected to things that like we're all very connected. And you know, and speaking of Ab, he is a man of faith. Like I'm not. And you aren't necessarily doubting. I but, once was. Yeah. And I'm no longer. But but we all have faith in something, and and I think that tapped into it. So. Uh, what we want to try to do is contextualize where this was coming from. A lot of it was for him was church music. Um, he was on a trip to, to Denver and heard a choir sing uh, this song. If I can help somebody, it stuck with him and uh, it stuck with him because of these lyrics. If I can help somebody as I pass along, if I can cheer somebody with a word or a song, if I can show somebody he's traveling wrong, then my living will not be in vain. Mm-hmm. Uh, that recording does not exist, but one thing that uh, he actually Kind of commissioned uh, was his friend Mahalia Jackson, 
soon after that. And uh, and so we're going to start off with that. This is if I can help somebody. Uh, Hanley Jackson. This is off of greatest hits, but this is a this is a bona fide classic. So. As I travel alone, if I can church in a long time, be a long time, and that will, uh, that will move you, <laughs> and not, mm-hmm. not just the beauty of Mahalia's voice, but, but the words she says, the, the simplistic, I said when we were uh, off mic, you know, that sentiment transfers to songs like Lean on Me, uh, mm-hmm. and anything, mm-hmm. like it's the root of, of a lot of soul music, uh, lot of i guess togetherness music because i think that is sort of a genre especially when you get in the 70s a lot of sly no of course uh, yeah. some teddy like we just watched of course no everything is it's like the thing with mahalia that always strikes me and i think struck dr king as well is that her voice is directly out of like the antebellum tradition of black mm-hmm. music and that's the thing that I think that if you're like a modern music fanatic, you don't have an understanding of. But it's a thing that lasts in music until, I would say, like, you know, synthesizers kind of come in and, you know, kind of like water down the influence of how that connects with people. But I think that, you know, it's like a 100 years of African-American music that's directly out of that spiritual space, which is astounding. It's it's astounding, like when you think about it, because it's like literally a hundred years of music have this like connective tie, and it goes all the way through. Like when you look at people like Ray Charles and artists like of, of that ilk, who you know get lambasted at certain points for taking the spiritual and making it secular. It's the fact that you took the god out of the music. You can't take like there's a whole like argument about soul music and R and B where you cannot take the Lord out of the music. You're doing something horribly wrong if the spirit of Christ or the spirit of God is not right, right. present front and center in what you're doing. Yeah, mm-hmm. I think I, I think what will um, 
kind of a spoiler, I think. Not that I mean, we didn't coordinate like what we're doing tonight, no. but um, yes, we did very carefully. Well, well, we did. There was some. We all, <laughs> we all, we all put put thought into it. Um, but but I suspect that as kind of a spoiler, what will emerge is that there's these really distinct kind of themes, um, and one has to do with the with the way in which the civil rights movement and uh, Martin Luther King in particular constructed uh, the arguments for social justice from a distinctly uh, fundamentally American, uh, yeah. you know, it's sort of predicated on the idea of America as a place and as a place that has a certain promise that needs to be fulfilled. And I think the other kind of parallel theme is this idea of it's it's hitting it, this kind of universality and yeah. uh, and it's and it's really getting at sort of a kind of a, a, a fundamental uh, human core um, that's also been there all along. And and, and if you think about you know, the year we just had, 2017, the, the era we are in, uh, civil rights is rapidly becoming more relevant <laughs> than it has been in the past. Uh, you're, you know, you have somebody like Mavis Staples, who was influenced mm-hmm. in mm-hmm. around, around King, but just released one of the best albums of, of the decade, as far as I'm concerned. I mean, that was one of Dr. King's favorite vocalists. Right. Yeah. It's Mavis. Right. So, and and it's, it's fascinating to me that when you look at, like, the modern civil rights movement, that there's like an argument whenever we rediscover the Lord mm-hmm. in music and people get excited and they're like, why, why is this happening? And it's so fascinating because again, a hundred years ago, that was the whole, that was the only argument was secular right. versus non-secular music. And now we've gotten to a point where we're so far removed from any sort of like, you know, religious statement that's like overtly religious that when it happens again, it's like, you know, you've seen Haley's Comet. It's like, what's going on? This is so foreign and so unique. Yeah, It's strange to me. Yeah, it, we, we've gotten so far. Mm-hmm. And I think that there's an argument that has to be made about the space that that occupies in music possibly again, and that needs to be there. I think that part of the thing about what Solange does mm-hmm. so well as an artist mm-hmm. is that so much of what she does is based in faith and not based overtly in religion. Right, in a it, specific faith necessarily. Right, just mm-hmm. faith. Just faith. Yeah. faith, concept in, of faith, right? Uh, well, and the, the one thing about this song too, I mean, this was written in 1945, right? This, you know, and 20 years later, it's it's you know a Mahalia Jackson song, right? For all intents and purposes, mm-hmm. and the idea that these songs are carried through, you know, m- multiple generations and repurposed in ways, you know, that that speak to that time, and that's the sign of a song. If you want to be too, you know, whatever, but that can actually a song that can do that work is, is a very special and, thing. And that's something I want to get to eventually in, in this discussion is like, what is that song actually? Is that, is that actually a song? Like, what is that? That's something that can do that. Something that can have that impact. Right. That's something that's always been here. I don't know, but maybe, mm-hmm. uh, who wants to, who wants to go next here? Uh, I'll, I'll, I'll go next. Okay. I guess, um, so uh, there, there's two songs from one artist on his playlist, and it's ultimately important that there's two songs from one artist on his playlist. Um, Nina Simone is one of the most like important creative forces in the history of African-American culture. Uh, I think you, you would agree with me, Timothy, right? Yes, 100%. Right. So the thing that Nina Simone does for most people in this generation now, I was funny, I was talking about I was doing this with some friends of mine today who are in their 20s, and they immediately, when I said I was playing Strange Fruit, which is what we're going to hear, they were they, 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 they just bolt up right. Mm. And they're like, the power 
of that song. And I'm like, yeah. Yep. And it's the fact that it's a song that comes from a story about two young men who are hanged wrongfully and, and, you know, apparently for, you know, for being involved in a, in a, in a, in an accused rape and, and murder. And 10 years after that, you know, Nina Simone takes a version of the poem that was written about that situation and turns it into a song. And the first time that she performed the song live, nobody clapped. Mm. People were mournful in the face of it. And what's crazy is like most people know strange fruit in this generation as the song that Kanye West sampled for Jesus's Blood on the Leaves. Mm -hmm. And Blood on the Leaves, after you hear it, is a song that you can't dance to mm -hmm. in a club. You have to stop and chant and yell along with it because the the influence of the, or the orchestration. And then when you hear, you know, the affectation is placed on Nina's voice, it's just, it resonates in a way that like, still gives you like the pain of that that she's trying to convey and it's kind of like an unresolved pain which is the reason why i brought it up is i know that nina simone three days after dr king passed away performed uh what's the name of the song i wanted to reference it um in conversation here it's um what is it it's uh why the king of love is dead mm. and she sings this in, in, in homage to what he did and who he was. And I think that there's something about Dr. King in this era. Like, people have to understand. It's like, Dr. King in this era is the same thing as, like, when you think about, like, Magic and Larry Bird playing basketball at the exact same time. Like, it's like, no, in the sense of, like, Malcolm X and Dr. King were civil rights leaders at the exact same time. These are iconic figures that the world... That changed the universe mm -hmm. and they lived lives and influenced people in real time doing things that like we look back at in the 21st century like these are astounding things that could never happen ever. But that was Monday for this guy. And then with people like Nina Simone who are once in a lifetime creatives mm -hmm. having these kinds of people around doing astounding things gets her into the studio gets her thinking gets her writing. And gets her performing mm. and gets her in, in, you know, spaces where songs like Strange Fruit can emerge from. Mm -hmm. it, should be, it should be noted that the original version was uh, recorded by uh, Billie Holiday. Right. 1939. Mm -hmm. 1939. Mm -hmm. So this was around. And, uh, yeah. and, but it also. And that goes back to what he was saying about yeah. different generations identifying exactly. with different yeah. versions. Right. And, you know, like I first knew Strange Fruit from the Billie Holiday song. Right, because that's it was on like a complete deck of recordings of Billie Holiday, yeah, like yeah, yeah. quadruple CD set I got from Columbia House or something, yep, some yep. shit like that. But um, and I loved it; it was amazing. But that so that generation knew Strange Fruit from from that recording, and then another generation knows it from Nina Simone, and now another generation knows it from the Kanye West sample. And again, right. it goes back to that: like few songs are able to carry those kind of messages that are are so unfortunately continuously relevant but mm -hmm. also that 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 can serve multiple audiences at multiple different times yeah and there's the thing i wanted to mention before we play it about nina simone that's important in all these artists that we are especially the african-american artists on this list um there's the thing about intonation and voice in the black community in this era there's something about being able to speak with intelligence yeah. and being able to speak with proper diction and over enunciating 
everything to a point where it is undeniable what somebody's trying to say yeah. and the point that somebody's trying to make. Like, there's no two ways about it. You know exactly what Nina Simone's trying to, like, enunciate in her very special Nina Simone way. Everybody mm-hmm. knows her Nina Simone song in here. There's a very special way that Nina Simone sings in order to make sure that you know exactly what she is saying and you know the exact meaning of every single word that she's saying. Yep. Uh, and, and on that note, uh, let's check out what she has to say. Strange fruit. And blood at the roots Black bodies Swinging in the southern breeze Strange fruit Hanging From the poplar trees Pastoral scene of the gallant South. Them big bulging eyes and the twisted mouth. Scent of magnolia. Clean and fresh Then the sudden smell Of burning flesh Here is a fruit For the crows to pluck For the rain to gather For the wind to suck For the sun to rot There's, is is there a song more devastating than that? I mean, okay, so you there, okay, so there is a song you'll hear later in this podcast. <laughs> that I neglected to mention earlier is that she's one of the only vocalists I haven't heard anybody since like the Sisters Knowles be able to like sing with politics, drenched in the vocal. And like have it like hit the mic and just beat it over the over the head in a way that like the politics are like overt mm-hmm. and like they grab you and pull you in and you get carried along like the ride with them like up down left right like when you're like formation mm-hmm. or when you hear like you know cranes in the sky or or dam and you're just like okay I would argue that this is a more Solange, devastating yeah. song though yeah. sonically. Um, the 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 composition of the song the way that she does the vocal drops and she you know like there is complete utter devastation 
in this piece. I mean, the, the, the other Nina song we'll talk about is devastating, but yeah. it has a completely different vibe. Um, uh, that that's more that's more um a call to action against the devastation, whereas this is just like, fuck, you know, there's, like it's just this complete like release in a way yeah, of 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 just being all, you know, this this is what you do, and then you take action, but you need right. this moment right now that this song provides, but to get to that next level. Right, right. And, and once you, I think, internalize and understand what the song is about, mm-hmm. once the imagery starts, like, mm-hmm. firing in your synapses, those spaces, what you experience is, and should be, and that's the whole point, it's horrific. Like it's it, it's just horror. Yeah. yeah, and and what and what we can't hear with our ears is you know we can't go back to the time in history when the events that are being described in that song were commonplace, and it took a song for people to realize that, or to sort of contextualize it and present it in a way mm-hmm. that actually led people to think, oh well, that's that's more than just not okay, right? That's actually something that needs to be combated. Um, and and I think a lot, you know, uh, uh, there's there's a lot of talk about how um, the current kind of progressive movement or the social justice movement is is sort of drenched in hyperbole. But 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 realistically speaking, like all of these events are much closer to us in history than uh, than highways being populated by self-driving cars are. Yeah. Right. Yeah. We're talking about things that happened just a couple of decades ago. The Civil mm-hmm. War is close is closer to us today than the Salem witch trials were to the Civil War when it happened, which mm-hmm. is one of those right. kind of this astonishing... Is, this is the thing that gets me. So, like, I'll be 40 this year. Dr. King died... Club, man. Dr. King died 50 years ago. Yep. Mm-hmm. There's only 10 years that separated Dr. King being shot, you know, in Memphis, Tennessee, and me being born. Mm-hmm. Like, that's one of those things when you stop and realize it, you're like, oh, okay, that's like yesterday. And when and when you think about that, and then you think about like all of the things that we expect society to do, just demand society to do, and then you think about like the grand stretch of time and how long it's taken for like you know say humans to learn how to walk, right? Which is an intrinsic trait that is important to the you know the the progression of mankind. Like that took centuries, like literal evolution had to occur. Then when you think about like okay. How do we, uh, you know, demystify race to the point, race and culture to the point where people can see each other eye to eye without seeing color of skin and right, content of right. character as, you know, as, as barriers to appreciating people? And you're like, oh, well, 50 years have passed. Right. And then you're like, which is which is enough time for people to get over systemic, you know, oppression, but not enough time for people who lost the Civil War to get over yeah, right. <laughs> flying that fucking flag and yeah, having right. those people it's in like, their public squares. Right. Yeah. Well, I think part of part of it too is that you know you you said that some, uh, there was just something said about you know this opening, this this being kind of an eye opening moment for some people in terms of like this is this is that bad this is something that right. and, and I think something we should think about as we're as we're talking about these songs is the spaces that they're being heard in and the audiences that are that are hearing them because to the majority of the country 
this was not news. Just like today, people are like, oh, well, there's terrible. Duh, duh, duh. And everyone's like, yeah, this has been here. This whole conversation yeah. right now, like, oh, yeah. life is hard for women. Yeah, no shit. <laughs> <laughs> right. Like, you're all just getting hip to this now, you know, and it's the same kind of, you know, yeah. kind of notion yeah. of like, we've known. And so there are certain communities in the country who were like, yep, strange fruit. That This is literally our lives right. every single day. You all are just now starting to pay attention to it. Right. If it's via a song, better than not at all. But, you know, we have to kind of remember. And then also kind of going to the, the other Nina song is, you know, where that takes place. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, and, and the, the creative moment that she has in Carnegie Hall. And let's talk yeah. about what kind yeah. of a space that is for that moment to be to being to even take place. And so. You know, it is a combination of like the recordings, the the moments and these places that the songs are being created as much as where they're being heard, where they're being played, where they're being performed. And sometimes with a lot of these artists, unfortunately, where they're allowed to be played and allowed to perform. And that's not the same places from, you know, where they maybe needed to be heard. Right. Well, well, let's move towards Mississippi. Goddamn. Yeah. Let's stay yeah. on this. Mississippi. Goddamn. Um, and like, as you mentioned, uh, Carnegie yeah. Hall, like, uh, like, uh, edu- educate us, Timothy. This yeah. So, um, this is, you know, Nina Simone in, I think her one of, if not her most, um, creative inspired again, but yet still devastated, um, moments where she she writes this song, um, and and in 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 an hour, mm-hmm. okay. So her creativity level is heightened to the point where she can't she can't barely even like contain herself in this in this moment. And thinking about the title of the song, Mississippi Goddamn, she is in every sense reacting to the state. Of Mississippi, I don't mean the actual physical like border lines that create a state, right. like the state right. of affairs in Mississippi mm-hmm. as being um, the most dangerous place for a black person to exist in this country, and the the rate at which people are being um, are, are are being killed, it's just astounding. And to kind of put that in 1964 for her to be doing this yeah you know you have a, a history of of you know Emmett Till is 55 um and mm-hmm. from there that keeps happening and the level of attention on a, each murder is different of course but it, it's still taking place and to be um to have the highest number of lynchings in the nation from um 1892 to 1968 yeah this is a climate of fear that is unimaginable um to so many people today um and for her to be in that moment and be inspired by the tragedy that she is learning about consistently um to put together a song that is so defiant um and yet also, like I said before, a call to action and in, in, in not just in like what she's saying, but the way that the song is constructed, the percussive elements to it, the way she mm-hmm. plays the piano in those moments, the mm-hmm. way she's using her voice to to just accentuate what she's saying in a way that is a combination of 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 anger and frustration, 
but there are glim- there are moments of hope and moments of you know um, this kind of spiritual freedom that she can accomplish the name of this in the moment. Is Mississippi, yeah. goddamn. I mean every word of it. Alabama's got me so upset. Tennessee made me lose my rest. And everybody knows about Mississippi. God damn. Alabama's got me so upset. Tennessee made me lose my rest. And everybody knows about Mississippi. God damn. Can't you see? feel it it's all in the air i can't stand the pressure much longer somebody say a prayer alabama's got me so upset tennessee made me lose my rest and everybody knows about mississippi god damn this is a show tune but the show hasn't been written for it yet so one thing that she acknowledges in the song, jokingly, but not really, she says, you know, this is a show tune, but the, the show hasn't been written yet. And, and in a way, she's kind of addressing the fact that, yes, she's making light of the style of the song, the vampiness, you know, that it is kind of the sing-songy um, construction. But to say, like, but the show hasn't been written yet, because she does end with this message of, like, you keep telling us we need to, we need to slow down, but but... The tragedies are still happening. She addresses, you know, right. these with with the lyric in terms of being lazy and all. Just keep pick, picking the cotton. All the other like so blatant, such blatant stereotypes of African Americans that are so pervasive in popular culture. And she's she's putting those out there. So she's kind of telling this story and painting this picture. And at the end of it, you know, there there isn't like, but it's going to be okay. At all. Right. No, I mean, it's, all. it's literally, right. God literally damn it. like, God damn it. Like, we're going to uh, be in this. But but yeah. to so say flat. the show hasn't been written, you know, she's kind of making a joke. But it's also a really, I think, kind of poignant thing to say because it hasn't been written yet. This None of this has been defined. There is no blueprint for what's about right. to happen in the well, country. And, and this is like 1964 when she did this. Mm-hmm. This is a year after King gave a speech, mm-hmm. and um, but still sixty-eight is four years away. Yeah, four, four, four years away from sixty-eight, and he's he's going into the White House to meet with Johnson. He's and he, you know, obviously that speech woke people up a lot. You know, we're trying to bounce around that timeline to see what influenced him to give that speech, but also influenced after. How do you think, like hearing something like this, like? What in the work that now he was firmly entrenched in? He's he's the guy yeah. in 1964, and he's got his general. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But she's not saying I, I stand with you and I support every single thing you do. No, you know at all. She's it's this it's this beginning of not beginning of, but it's it's this um, kind of continuous theme with this movement where it's people coming to the table realizing that they need to come together. And it's okay that they don't have the same message or the same goals specifically, but they real they recognize that if they don't come together at the table, shit's not going to happen. Well, there's an important there's an important 
conversation here too. And since Marcus brought up um, kind of the the Martin Malcolm uh, dialectic yes. earlier, um, you know, I, th- I think I think there's this tendency to think that in hindsight, you know, Martin, what Martin Luther King was doing enjoyed broad support from a majority of the population, which is nope. patently nope. demonstrably yeah. nope. untrue. Um, it just so happened that Malcolm X was even scarier to white people than, uh, in hindsight, than than MLK was at the time. But I think I think it's a it's a fairly like mainstream uh, opinion of historians now that that the two of them, even though they spent much of their lives arguing about tactics, because that's really what the that's what nonviolence violence is about. It's tactics. It's not a difference about goals. It's it's as Mandela famously said, like if nonviolence serves the goal, then nonviolence is great. If it doesn't, then you resort to violence. So. Right. It's 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 sort of commonly understood that you know that 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 Malcolm going to Mecca, and MLK going to Chicago, right? I think and understanding that the, that preaching nonviolence in Chicago didn't didn't work the same way it did no. uh, in the South, and they're both sort of converging on the elephant in the room, which it turns out was class, right? And right. that's the um, and there's and there's a couple of references to that to to sort of the idea of not just racial and social justice, but also economic justice and yeah. Right. There's a there's a story I wanted to like relate about Mississippi Goddamn from my mother. Um, the first time I remember Mississippi Goddamn, I was like nine years old. Cause this is kind of my mom. This is the kind of mother my mom is. Um, and she was trying to explain to me the civil rights movements. So my mom used very like brusque terms to like contextualize what it was. So she explained lynching to me as thus. She said, "Imagine you were walking down the street, and five white people could just beat you up, and nobody could stop them." And I remember like walking in downtown DC, like a week after hearing that and being like a lone young black boy with like giant white people surrounding me and being like, oh my God, they could beat me and nobody would care. Mm -hmm. And that's like bizarre and terrifying, but, but the, the truth in a lot of ways and it's like in all the ways in like all the it's ways, not, in all the ways. Yeah. Not, and no. and uh, and uh, yeah. horrifically it's still the truth right and it's just like but it's like when you think about it like that and then you hear a song it to be goddamn the 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 impulse of it makes all the sense because you're like this is not that it's wrong it's more that this is dumb on some level and that it's <laughs> ignorant and stupid and well, there, there is ridiculously like yeah, unnecessary. because there is a point when you see something there. I mean, there are objective truths. One of them is that like racism is bullshit, right? Like it, it, it. I mean, we understand why it exists, but it is it's bullshit. Yeah, like, there, it, it, it. There's there's no point either biologically, evolutionarily. There's there's literally no point to it, right? And that song captures like that. It is that frustration. It's like it's it's what conversations you and I have about right. stuff is like stuff can be just so fucking dumb, right? That you're just like, God, man, God damn, really? like, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. And that's the, the that's the power of it. It's just yeah, it's just yeah, it's boom. good. Well, it's it's also one of those recordings that has this like immediacy and this urgency. Um, and I, and I know that when um. Kevin, when you first uh, mentioned the idea for this, for how to do this episode, I, I immediately started to think of things that were like not necessarily musical. And I was mm-hmm. kind of kicking around yeah, yeah, yeah. because because part of the idea is like sound is a form like recording sound is a form of recording history. Um, and we've talked before about how I uh, was at Smithsonian Folkways for mm-hmm. a summer and uh, acquired all the CDs um, and spent <laughs> uh 
well, um, it was it was a memorable summer, but 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 also really educational from the standpoint of like uh, just being able to collect things like sounds. And so I was I was kicking around um, the idea of like a Sterling Brown poem because Sterling Brown was a mm-hmm. professor here at Howard for a number of years. And um, but um, I, I partly because I work in in kind of blood safety. Um, uh, there's a song that's always, um, spoken to me and I, and that I think tells a really important story and it's free, free and equal blues by, uh, mm-hmm. by Josh White, which was actually written by the guy who wrote the lyrics for the wizard of Oz, whose name I'm blanking sure. on right now. It's like, yep, Howard or something like that. Um, I had the liner notes on my phone, but it's, uh, it's lost to me now. But uh, but it's but it's a song that has really kind of intricate and and funny rhyming schemes, and it's all built around the idea of the absurdity of segregating uh, uh, donated blood by race, and um, and one of the you know we've we're, we've talked about sort of the generational echoes. I mean, we're um, in 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 the blood world right now. We're talking about what to do, um, how to handle transgender donors, and how FDA is going to let us. Uh, accept donations from those mm-hmm. individuals being that we just barely solved the issue of uh, men who have sex with men uh, as they're called in the industry. Um, and so it speaks to not only the long history of this idea of like the importance of blood, but, but it also kind of combines a lot of scientific and medical terminology that would have been sort of novel at the time and contrast the idea that we're making all this scientific progress. And at the same time, right. we're still so fucking backwards. And mm-hmm. so many of our, uh, our attitudes um, and, um, and the version we have here is a little, it's a live version, which, which kind of, uh, I think makes it a nice follow up here because there's some call and response between, uh, Josh White and the audience. Josh yeah. White had a, had a kind of a weird career. He was, he was, um, he was branded a, a, a communist in the early fifties and spent a good decade or so touring, uh, uh, mostly in Europe, um, after this recording. And he didn't come back until the early sixties. Right. And during there was a there was a poll at the time that actually had him ahead of Bob Dylan among college students as mm-hmm. uh, their favorite folk singer. Um, he performed at the March on Washington. Um, and so this recording is a little bit scratchy. You can go out there and find cleaner sounding ones. But the, the, the interesting thing is, is how clear his diction is here on all the complicated medical terminology. And so those later recordings, he sort of he didn't care to deliver those rhymes as, as carefully as he does here. So if you if you can listen past the scratches, I think it's a it's a rewarding experience. Green Equal Blues, Josh White. And I saw some plasma there. I upset as the doctor man. Now was the donor dark affair. The doctor laughed a great big laugh. And he puffed it right in my face. He said, a molecule is a molecule, son, and the damn thing has no race. And that was new singing, yes, that was news, that was very, very, very special news. Cause ever since that day we've had those free and equal blues. You mean you heard that, Dr. Claire? That the plasma in that test tube there could be white man, black man, yellow man, red. That's just what that doctor said. The doc put down his doctor book and gave me a very scientific look. And he spoke out plain and clear and rational. He said, metabolism is international. And that was news. Yes, that was news. That was very, very, very special news. 
Because ever since that day we've had those free and equal blues. Then the doc wigged up his microscope with some Berlin blue blood. And by gosh, it was the same as Chung King, Queeper Chef, Chattanooga Timbuktu blood. Why those men who think they're noble don't even know that the corpuscle is global. Trying to disunite us with their racial supremacy and flying in the face of old man chemistry and taking all the facts and trying to twist them. But you can't over through the circulatory system, get it? And that was news, yes, that was news. That was very, very, very special news. Cause ever since that day we've had those free and equal blues. So I stayed at that St. James Infirmary. <laughs> I couldn't leave that place, it was too interesting. But I said to the doctor, give me some more of that scientific talk talk, and he did. He said, melt yourself down into a crucible, pour yourself out into a test tube, and what have you got? 3,500 cubic feet of gas, that's the same for the up and lower class. Well, I let that pass. Carbon, 22 pounds, 10 ounces. You mean that goes for princes, dukes, and counts? Whatever you are, that's what the mounts is. Carbon, 22 pounds, 10 ounces. Iron, 57 grains. Not enough to keep a man in chains. 500 ounces of phosphorus, that's whether you're poor or prosperous. Hey, buddy, can you spare a match? Sugar, six ordinary lumps, free and equal races for all nations. And you take 22 teaspoons of sodium chloride, that's salt. And you add 38 quarts of H2O, that's water. Mix two ounces of lime, a pinch of chloride of potash, a drop of magnesium, a bit of sulfur, and a soup of hydrochloric acid, and you stir it all up. And what are you? <laughs> you walk in drugstore. It's an international metabolistic cartel. And that was news. Yes, that was news. Now you change it. So listen, you African and Indian and Mexican, Mongolian, Tyrolean and Tartar. The doctor's right behind the Atlantic Charter. The doc's behind the new brotherhood of man. Has prescribed it San Francisco and Yalter, Dumbarton Oak. And at parts them, every man, everywhere, is the same. When he's got his skin off, and that's the news. Yes, that's the news. heard that song? That's cool. It's absolutely fantastic. Complex. Why is it complex, okay, Marcus? No, I'll happily break this down. <laughs> um, okay, so there's a minstrel tra- tradition in African-American uh, musical tradition. Uh, everybody from Rufus Thomas to, uh, gosh, um, Nat King Cole, anybody who's a, a star in, in African-American music until about, like, say, 1960, 1970 maybe has part of their history um, tied up in the fact that they could not sing songs or even perform songs with in in with their the proper amount of political meaning behind them because of the need because of you know like if you wanted to perform in in shared interracial you know inter social spaces you had to provide some levity some comedy and not just comedy but like almost lampooning 
comedy. Slightly self-deprecating mm-hmm. yeah. comedy. Yeah. Well, well, more than slightly Not self-deprecating, even, I was, I'd I'm, say. See, I'm, right. I'm well, filtering I'm right now. More than slightly self-deprecating. There's a thing with uh, the menstrual tradition that's wholly deprecating mm-hmm. and taking away all agency and power away from race within your voice. Yes. And you're turning it into comedy as in saying that, you know, you're like, I'm black. I can't be intelligent. I would never say such things. I would never say anything to harm the the largely white male heterosexual power structure by which this country is formed. And there's something in the way that that song is performed where he's saying things that are revolutionary in that song. Like, actually, mm-hmm. revolutionary. Like, actually, like... In, in any social cultural context of any generation, like supremely empowered. But at the same time, at every single point, if you listen, at every single point that he crosses yeah. the line of making a point that is too real, he has to take for every one step forward or four steps back four steps into back. literal slave coonery humor. Mm-hmm. And yes, I said mm-hmm. coonery humor because that's exactly what it is. And mm-hmm. as an African-American person, I can say that. Well, well that's the truth. Well, I think I think that's absolute. I mean, I think Josh White was was very popular with kind of uh, uh, right thinking uh, white liberals in the forties and fifties. Yeah, they were they were well, they, they were the nineteen. 19- they were woke. Yeah, but they also were like, oh, he's so funny. Like, so shut up. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. You know, like he the 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 the, the I said slightly deprecating, self deprecating to which is a. Eventually, it becomes slight, and it becomes less and less, right? But even here, it's, it's clear it's very, very present. And so you have mm-hmm. someone who is an incredible musician, an incredible singer-songwriter, an incredible presence, but yet he still has to do everything that Marcus, Marcus just right. talked about. And yeah. and yep. the people in the audience are like, oh, he's smart and intelligent and yeah. talented. Oh, isn't it- that... Um, it, it's not unproblematic by the standard okay. of our time. So, yeah. so, so I'll give people a, a sense of what it is. Okay, so like one of the, the greatest moments of minstrel show tradition, if you need to like really get it, is if you watch the Watt Sax performance by Rufus mm. Thomas in 1972. So in 1972, uh, Rufus Thomas was on Stax Records, and he was in his 60s, I want to say. And he had released uh, The Funky Penguin and The Funky Chicken, and these were like immediate number one selling R&B dance hits. And he's over the age of 60, and he gets on stage, and not, and he doesn't do like a performance where it's like, I'm a hip young star guy, because he's in his 60s. Instead, he gets on stage and literally does a 1847 minstrel show. And to watch, and it's and it's fascinating because you watch it, and like I've shown it to my white friends, who laugh the entire time at this old black man in white, like you know, in white go-go boots and a a a pink romper suit doing his thing. And then you get this thing where, if you show it to black people, it's like a whole other response where it's not even like. Funny, it's more just cool because you get every single piece of the intention of what he's trying to bring back into the conversation with this like amazing pop song and it's this level of like aware like ignorance yeah. that's on a whole other level. So yeah. like aware ignorance. That's interesting. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, but that's yeah. what it is. And that's what it, when you hear the Josh White 
And I mean, because it's going to be hard to find like Josh White videos on YouTube, but you could find like 25 different versions of Rufus Thomas at Wattstacks yeah, just to give right. you a sense of what it is. And that's the thing. It's like an aware level of ignorance. And the part about Dr. King that's fascinating is like Dr. King never really spoke with that level of ignorance. There was yeah, always right. a thing where right. he was always the smartest man uh, in the room. That, that probably came from the church. Right. I, I, I'm, I'm just hypothesizing because in, in church requires authority. Right. And, uh, well, and, and, and I mean, and, and, and Malcolm X was known to like, he would get into like formal kind of Oxford style <laughs> debates with, with like people who had PhDs in philosophy and not right. fucking back down and not, but, he, but, he would not be unpedantic no, in the face the, of right. someone holding it. Right. But there's so. a trick in Malcolm doing that. Because the context by which Malcolm always did that was that he was a reformed ex-black convict. Yep, yep. And that's, and that's the same thing as, like, the Josh White thing and, like, the Rufus Thomas thing, where, like, you get on stage as a black man and you're like, I used to be in prison, Mr. White PhD man, and I right. can speak better King's English than you can yep. and can make better points about race than you can. So what does that really mean? I think mm -hmm. I think I think too just to just to um uh kind of close the loop on this and and um and kind of uh, give one final bow to Miss Simone is I think a lot of the people in the audience at the Josh White show are very comfortable having a lot of their feelings about social justice and racial equality confirmed. I don't think any of them are clamoring to live next to black families in 1946 right. in Carnegie right. Hall, and I right. think right. that's still right. so to sort of flip that around right. to the just like you know everyone line. will go to a right. Mahalia Jackson concert, but right. they don't want her living in the house next to them yep. in Chicago. Yep. Mm -hmm. Not even. Moving on, I want I want to um, want to talk about a guy, and uh, I want Marcus you to talk a little bit more about him because I feel like he, you connect a little bit. Oh yeah, like well, seriously, Curtis? because when I huh Curtis? No, oh no, who Banner? <laughs> oh, Banner Rustin. Oh, Bad Rustin. Yes. Oh, Baird absolutely, Rustin. Um, absolutely. <laughs> when when we said we were going to do this, we uh, uh, this was actually admittedly like it's a personal challenge. I was like, let's let's see what we can find going on here because we all know the songs that that the civil rights movement. Influence, like it, it, they're just for a rock. You got yeah. it. Like you can yeah. hit it. Um, and uh, I came upon a bunch of work by this guy Baird Rustin, and uh, this was a man who was openly gay. Yeah, a uh, a brilliant political strategist, a brilliant tenor, a uh, brilliant. Uh, advocate of nonviolence. In fact, that's where it came from, and and from yeah. that. From that point, uh, I, I want to. I'll toss it over to you, Mister Dowling. Okay. So, like, when you learn about Bayard Rustin, and, okay. So Bayard Rustin is that guy that, for people who are unaware of the civil rights movement, and there's still people who are unaware of the civil rights movement. Mm -hmm. You know, Dr. King did a thing, and Malcolm X did a thing, and there was a march, and there was a speech, and then a guy got shot, and then stuff happened. So, I mean, there are a lot of people who listen to their podcast, and this is still what they know about the civil rights movement. I still know some of these people, and it frustrates me. And when I have these conversations with these people... They're, they're all up in your Facebook, man. Literally Stop, all up I'm in my sorry. Facebook. Real, realness. Realness. So, okay. So, I had a conversation with a friend of mine who I have a friend with on Facebook about Baird Rustin. And I explained to him, and I said, what if I told you that the actual person who's the most important person 
in all of the history of the civil rights movement was a gay black man. And he's like, that's not true. And I'm like, no, the guy who did all of the organizing and all of the orchestrating behind Mm -hmm. how Dr. King moved, behind Mm -hmm. how Ralph David Abernathy moved, behind Mm -hmm. how the SCLC moved, behind how, you know, like the, 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 the cross coalition of racial organizations that Dr. King was heading up at a certain point moved was all defined by a very intelligent pacifist entertainer african-american gay man bayard rustin yeah and it's funny because most people are like oh well, you know you, you you minimize somebody when you like immediately call them gay or say something that you know like cuts something out of their humanity but i think that the most important thing is that for most of the time that he was doing this this was in an era where being openly homosexual was not exactly seen as this thing that's like empowering and exciting and it was something that was very hidden but it was within in his the, circle and honestly it still wasn't quite as bad as being black right but within his circle everybody knew right and there wasn't hatred towards this man there was respect for what he brought to the table and i think that this is the important part of the conversation where you want to bring up just how diverse king's movement was within his movement by 63, 64, 65, when you get to the March at Washington, you have this coalition of the most amazing black people that probably ever lived all in there. You have mm. young civil rights organizers who are in college, like Jesse Jackson, Marion Barry, who are actively like, again, Jesse Jackson and Marion Barry are young guys in college hanging out like, I'm going to do a civil rights thing. And you know, like, and Marion Barry, mayor, former mayor of Washington, D.C., is in... Mayor for life. Yeah, the mayor for life. Is in Itabena, Mississippi. Yeah. Mississippi, goddamn. Yep. For real. He's a student organizer, and he's there. And, you know, you got guys like Baird Rustin, who is, an, again, an African-American gay man. And so, in a lot of cases, you would think, oh, so when you get into the room with this guy, you're immediately are seeing him as weaker or less than or other than. But, in fact... He's the guy that everybody's looking to going, what are we going to do now? He's the plug. He's the plug. He's the real plug. Like, this is a guy who worked with the NAACP. He worked with the unions, which is important in these movements because, again, most black workers couldn't get into the unions. Mm -hmm. That was a major, major thing was the idea that he was a guy who could get low-income people who were marching for rights jobs. So this is actually the plug. So like you want this guy to walk into the room. So like Dr. King would say, do a march in name a name a town. Let's say Jackson, Mississippi. Yeah. And then you get to Jackson and all the people march. And then, you know, the, the city council, town council, whatever, Jackson, Mississippi is like, well, we don't want to play ball with you guys. We don't want to sit at the table. That's when you bring out Bayard Rustin, who's mm. like the union organizer man. And he says, Here's what we need, and I'm an intelligent person. I am going to advocate for these things that these people need in such a way that you're not going to say no to me. And then once all these black people have jobs, then you have black people who have money and you have an established economic base. So that then when you do things like in Montgomery, Alabama, and in other cities, like, you know, you boycott buses and get large groups of people to mobilize and march halfway across the United States, 
They're still able to have their jobs when they get back home. They're not mm-hmm. ostracized and put back out on the streets and unable to do what they do. So actually, in real life, this is, again, probably the most important person in the entire civil rights movement. As many speeches yeah. as Dr. King could give, as many things as Dr. King could say, as many Nobel Peace Prizes as this man could win, somebody had to be behind it. And, uh, yeah, and on that note, I, I want to play a little clip. It probably won't be in the uh, playlist. We're going to try to figure We'll figure out how to get it in there, but it'll at least be in the post. It, uh, it's a YouTube thing. It's it's a very sparse uh, recording of him singing. Uh, there are lots of yeah, no, he's recordings a, of him singing, but this one... He's like a great... He's a great vocalist. He was in mm-hmm. post-Harlem Renaissance Harlem, just to give you a sense. Like, in yeah. the, in the yeah. mid-30s, he was, like, there and, like... A gifted, in the uh, Josh White Quartet, right? Like he's like a guy. He's like actually like a known vocalist. Yeah, and and but this this is uh, completely raw and completely uh, powerful. And uh, yeah, there's nothing else to say about it. It's just uh, on June the third, the High Court said, "When you ride in the state, Jim Crow is dead. You don't have to ride Jim Crow." And when you get on the bus, and when you get on the bus, get on the bus, said any place, cause Irene Morgan won her case. You don't have to ride Jim Crow. You don't have to ride Jim Crow. No, you don't have to ride Jim Crow. Go quiet like if you face arrest. NAACP will make a test. You don't have to ride Jim Crow. And someday we'll all be free. Yes, someday we'll all be free. When united action turns the tide and black and white sit side by side. Oh, someday we'll all be free. About that for me is how much... It relates back to uh, sort of that first song that we played. It's just a it's a church hymn, but but mm-hmm. he's talking about salient political points at the time, mm-hmm. and not even dumbing it down. It's like you better be a wonk, yeah. And yeah. Uh, you know, yeah. Obviously, the sentiment of like someday we'll all be free is fine, but you know, he's he's working in stuff that is part of his business and and putting it to song, and then people and. I think how songs work a lot of times is like people hear when you hear people say they're lyrics people or or music people and stuff they hear parts of it and stuff but if there's a hook it gets in them and then eventually they get the whole thing and that's why it's such a powerful medium. Well, I think I think maybe what what you and I Kevin especially don't don't get as much of and maybe even Marcus is a lapsed Catholic is you know, Ameri- lapsed. Well, um, so <laughs> so American Christianity is by and large a failed institution, yeah. right? Like yeah. it's not. It, it, I'm a lapsed Catholic. It voted. It voted for Trump. It uh, it supports Jerry Falwell. It believes in carrying guns. It it doesn't want to help the poor, um, and uh, and it's not. And and weirdly, a guy like uh, Pope Francis or Chico, as he's called in Brazil, comes along. And because uh, cool he's Francisco, right? He he is a cool dude, and he's all about doing the things that that we thought that religion was was supposed to be about, and it right. and it by and large hasn't been. And it's really about it's it's about the people. It's not about it's not about preaching morality. It's not about it's really about touching people and connecting with people. And 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 uh, I think I think Ab strikes that 
that chord on yeah. on on dialogue. But I think but I think that's why we keep. I think I think that's why the relig- the overt religiosity of some of these these texts doesn't mm. bother those of us who aren't religious is because yeah. it seems to speak to a time before religion was like co opted by conservative politics. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, I I would totally agree with that. I mean, I think I think there is there's value in just common human decency and the value isn't to yourself. Well, it's old fashioned. It's well, quite, it's quite it, these it's days funny. when somebody must come it, from shithole countries, it, but, it, but, it, but it's also, it, it is, you know, if you, uh, what did Patton Oswald say? Life is chaos. Be kind. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, and that, that's, that sort of sums it up. And, yeah. And and you can apply that to a lot of things, and that doesn't erase any of the horrors that result from when that doesn't happen. Right. Um, but, but there's but, still, I mean, the, the the messaging in this song is still very, it's very direct. Yeah. At the same time, I mean, like it is right, not, it is not. I mean, the the woman's name is in this Irene M- Morgan, right? Irene yeah, Morgan. Yeah. yeah. Like she's on her way to Baltimore. Doesn't want to get off the bus and give up her seat. Ends up Thurgood Marshall tries her case. Like, yeah, you know. And right. so the it's this it's this again like these ideas that messages are being snuck into moments like this. Mm-hmm. So on the surface level, the song is everything you were just saying in terms of the sensing and the the, the 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 sense that you get the feeling it evokes the the all of the spirituality and all of that but at the same time it's like oh but wait but the actual there's yeah. more right. yeah. you know and yeah. it's and if you aren't paying attention <clears throat> white people you're not going to hear <laughs> yeah the message mm-hmm. that we're sending yeah. yeah this is also a call to action this is also a moment where we're where we're speaking out against what's happening in the world and you're just being, you know, wowed by the beautiful song and all of that. Like, that's fine. But if you're really listening, you're going to see that, that you're going to hear that there is much more to it. And that's what all of these songs have in common are the, are the, this, all the layers. Yeah. Yeah, sure. Uh, with that in mind, let's, uh, move on a little bit to, uh, Max Roach. Talk about layers. (laughs) Sure it is. Oh. Um, so this was actually your track that you wanted to, and this is another track that, believe it or not, I haven't heard. Oh. I'm excited. Have you listened to the free to, the We Insist Parts record? Okay, yeah. but not in its entirety. Yeah. So this is um, one of the most, I think, interesting compositions by Max Roach. Um, of course, the, the We Insist Freedom Now suite album is an iconic moment for music in particular for jazz because you know people had this idea that protest music has to have vocals and has to have words um which is of course absolutely not true Mm -hmm. um and max roach you know we actually feature him in the museum Mm -hmm. in two different places one is of course a drummer and and an amazing one at that but then also in this section where we look at people who are beyond category and in the tradition of Paul Robeson, artist as activist. Yeah. yeah. So he's in the company with Nina Simone and Chuck D and, you know, all these other people to kind of say that there, there are artists and always have been artists in multiple genres who are doing this work through their music. Um, and so the triptych prayer protest piece is not for the faint of 
part when it comes to um, paint of ears. Paint of ears. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I, that sounded so lame, and I was going to say it, but then I didn't. But thank you. No, I'm happy. I'm happy to be lame on Mike. I'm, I'm on Mike hopping to liking This Is Us. So I do can be that bad. So. Yeah. Um, but so this is this is 1960, and it's literally in the center of the record. Um, you think of a triptych, you think of oftentimes a piece of uh, you know art, a piece of art artwork that has three pieces or, or, or yeah. a series of three or what have you. I'm a Hieronymus Bosch fan, so I'm totally. You're very aware. <laughs> yes. Um, but the idea to do it's this like three way duck. <laughs> the idea to do this in a song, um, and and call it just what it is. Yeah. Um, is kind of also relatively relatively revolutionary. So this is also the time where um, Max Roach and Abby Lincoln are are together, and so she appears um, on the song, and she is the vocalist. But um, she has a limited number of of phrases to sing in terms of of lyric in terms in terms of lyrics. She really is using her voice more as an instrument to. Um, coincide with what else is happening. Um, and it is this, this three-part, um, again, piece that has, I mean, it's hard, it's, we just got to listen to it, I yeah, think, but, and, then, it. and then get into it. But it's just, um, it's, it's so powerful in so yeah. many ways. Okay, so let this affect you. Max Roach's triptych, Prayer, Protest, and Peace. Ooh. It's the first time I've heard that. Mm-hmm. Oh, oh my! It's a lot. It's, it's a lot. lot. Mm-hmm. But I'm, I'm, it's incredibly necessary <laughs> in so many ways, and it's it's you know it's a direct reaction. Like this is all again this idea that that instrumental music can be in reaction to events without having words, right? You know, and you hear 
you, she's not saying anything in particular, but you know what she's saying and what you know what she's singing about and the yeah. way that she's just, you know, even the way she's breathing, you know, with, of course, what's happening underneath and, and in front and in front of and in and behind her in terms of the, the instrumentation and the way that that Max Roach is approaching right. every single thing he does. That, All of that put together, like that, you, you know exactly what they're talking that about. Peak in the middle. I mean, this is an eight-minute track. Mm-hmm. That peak in the middle, and then it's a long cool down, but it never cools down to anything less than "Do not fuck with her; mm-hmm. she's going to murder you," because shit ain't right. Yeah, and. You deserve to be murdered because you're the person who didn't make it right. I think they. Call, I mean, I encourage everyone listening to read the liner notes um, for this record and for this album. And and you know, there are a couple of different. Maybe I'll send you the links. Um, a couple of different brilliant pieces about this song in particular. But you know, somebody called it like this sense of um, relaxed exhaustion mm. that she oh, has. Interesting. Yeah. yeah, and I think that that's that's really an interesting way to think about it because it is this like. It's not a breakdown. She's not. She's not losing no. control no. at all. Um, and not, you know, the, the musicians are not losing control um, by any means. And I think that's. I think that's really important. You know, Marcus and I were talking while it was playing that that there isn't a steady rhythmic pattern necessarily until the very end. And so it's kind of like this idea of restoration through the rhythm um, that that kind of brings us back to center almost. And it's important to note too that, like, even though uh, Dr. King's mission eventually was preaching nonviolence, uh, you know, rage doesn't have to be out of control. Doesn't even have to be loud. Doesn't even have to be loud. Or 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 lazy. Or, or disorganized, yeah. right? I mean, I mean, I mean that is that is a that's a, uh, that sounds like it's kind of. Um, I mean, it is it is dissonant, but it sounds like it's uncontrolled. It's not. It's actually very carefully, yeah, um, managed. And uh, um, and I think it's one of those things that that there's been there's been a lot of bad jazz that's come from kind of laziness and lack of discipline and just sort of thinking, well, Coltrane ran out of notes too and started yelling so I should be allowed to do that yeah. right yeah, and that's, not true. that's the wrong lesson that's, to take from John Coltrane's nope. career nope. Nope. <laughs> so, just saying that's so, the, is that the bio of Coltrane <laughs> that's, <laughs> the that's, that's the idea he ran out of yeah. notes so, so <laughs> for so for people in the crowd who are not jazz aware um, what you heard is like literally a, a wall of sound it's not like the full specter wall of sound but like a wall of like antagonized Sound by antagonized people who have, you know, agony that can't be, you know, like solved in three and a half minutes with, you know, a, three yeah. girls singing a song. So, I mean, the thing that compares well to this, if you listen to like Hank Shockley and the Bomb Squad doing Public Enemy songs mm-hmm. and the way that they like intentionally layer or don't layer mm-hmm. sounds on top of each other in order to create like intentional, powerful dissonance. And that's a thing that even, like even some of the, the stuff on the, the unreleased Kendrick record. Yeah. Yeah. I was going to say that yeah, too. Yeah. yeah. Oh yeah. All, all I was going to mention that like oh, next. Yeah. Just, just yeah. modern hip hop yeah. production, yeah. like the best yeah. stuff. Yeah. No, not not trap. Let's, yeah. let's, I because <laughs> I was going to say like it's. We're not it's here to a, relitigate future guys. No, but there's a certain era of rap that really is like anything that the Bomb Squad did between like '86 and like '92 when they were working with Ice Cube. 
is like right in that line of just like we are going to assault you with noise. So like the the instrumentals of songs like Burn Hollywood Burn mm-hmm. and songs like uh like uh Wicked I always look at it as like a really like tight yeah. like the the drum in there is really really solid. I mean, there's there's stuff in there, and then like when you get the stuff like Kendrick's unreleased record, which I'm glad you brought up Timothy because I was going to bring it up. I'm glad you did. Is that that's the closest you get to this in this era? Yeah, presently. Yeah. yeah so presently. So I mean, I just wanted to contextualize this for the modern era listener because you don't make jazz like that. Even even people saying like the West Coast get down make amazing jazz. You don't make jazz like that, right? Yeah. Anymore because I don't feel like, I mean. I don't feel like we have the same context for like the 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 generational like angst yeah. about mm-hmm. our situation to make that kind of music. Mm-hmm. And again, this is 1960, mm-hmm. right? So mm-hmm. so what this what a Mississippi goddamn she did that 64. Yeah, you know. So so we're we're bouncing around in time here with our conversation, but to to place this moment in terms of. What's happening politically in the country? What's happening, you know, with the movement? All of that, you know. There, there are these songs that are off that are that are both in reaction to and um, fueling people to react. And and one thing to consider too is that in 1960, it was way easier to slip a message of dissent, a message of outrage, a message into jazz, than it was. To slip it into the pop sphere or even the gospel sphere, or that, no, that's 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 exactly right. I think because um, I had one of my sort of like kind of in the bullpen was there's a there's a Mingus tune from '59 on Charles Mingus presents uh, or Mingus presents Mingus called uh, Fables of Faubus, which was about mm-hmm. uh, Orville Faubus, who was then the governor of Arkansas. And it's weird because I had I went through a big Mingus phase, and that's the only time I've heard like spoken word in a Mingus tune. And the band keeps there's sort of a call and response, and the band keeps saying, "Don't trust no Ku Klux Klan," and like there's yeah. there's just a lot of uh, there's like there's a level of anger that you're not used to hearing there. And the song is a total freak out. It's like 11 minutes long, and I thought that's not gonna it's not gonna work on a podcast. But I'm really glad Timothy that you brought an eight minute long freak out. Cause that's way better than, <laughs> than, uh, and it's, like and it's, to push and it's a little bit around it's actually, here. It's actually a better a and more bit. important tune than, than, uh, than that one. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I was also trying to think about, we could do an entire podcast on, you know, underappreciated songs on the civil rights movement. alone the Mississippi goddams of the world. Like there yeah. are so many things or an entire podcast on, I mean, not to whatever, but, you know, my entire senior project when I was in college was the role of spirituals in the civil rights movement. Right. You could do a whole conversation right on. just mm-hmm. on the repurposing of spirituals um, for, yeah. for, for this particular activism. reason. Yeah. Right. Yep. This like, is, this very is... intentionally. Like, some of it happened organically, some of it didn't, you know. Interesting. No, this is this this is already not what like if you tune into this podcast because you're into the civil rights movement, like you're already hearing <laughs> some things you didn't no, quite you know, you're not gonna hear like the <laughs> Like what you would expect to hear on the uh, the frontline uh, version of the civil rights yeah. movement. No, we shall but, overcome is not on our list. No, today. No, no, no. So if you're waiting to but, hear that, uh, sorry. But, but, but so so uh, along that lines, Eduardo, tell me about remember me. Yeah, I got I got a I got a traditional pick here, and 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 I I wanted to with both the the Josh White uh, song and this one, I kind of wanted to leverage a little bit of the idea because um, this is something that's really uh, been uh, instilled in me recently. 
through a number of different sources, including my friend uh, Dave Karen's uh, Vietnam book. But the idea of World War II becomes such a, a powerful thing for the idea of what America can be um, and its place in the world. And and I think one of the one of the key things that the civil rights movement uh, uh, does successfully is to sort of contrast the idea of how America views itself in the world and what America actually does to its own at home. Um, and uh, uh, and and Phil Oakes was a guy who was he was he was a troubled uh, troubled singer. I think for a lot of like old folkies, he was uh, probably their their real hero. Um, he uh, had. Um, I mean, you can read his Wikipedia entry. He 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 sadly takes his life um, a couple of, a couple of decades after this recording, I think, and and doesn't ever really have a stable life after the the mid '60s. But he was he was a guy who was very committed to the cause, and um, and Broadside was the was the folk magazine, and 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 folk music at the time was not just uh, music; it was really part of a kind of social, cultural, political milieu. And Oakes often called himself basically a, a, a someone who uh, a, a singing journalist, I think, is what he called himself. And um, the, uh, this album is a collection of just kind of uh, songs that he really did off the cuff for for Broadside Magazine. Um, Remember Me is a is a really nice, short, sweet song that basically says. Um, when when people come and start burning crosses and when the fascists show up here, just remember me. I'm the unknown soldier for World War II. I'm the person who died for for all these ideas about America. And you're now surrendering uh, our, our homeland to, oh, to these noxious the things that I was sent abroad to uh, uh, to fight and destroy. Didn't want to fight. It was the only thing to do. I was the victim of a world that went insane Will you show me that I didn't die in vain Remember me when the crosses are a-burning Remember me when the racists come around Remember me when the tides of peace are turning Remember me and please don't let me down on the South Pacific Islands and the Iwo Jima Sands We raised the flag of freedom over many distant lands Every time I killed a man my own heart felt the pain Will you show me that I didn't die in vain? Remember me when the crosses are a-burning Remember me when the racists come around Remember me when the tides of peace are turning Remember me and please don't let me down And I carried my old rifle to the European shores And every friend that died made me die a little more Have pity on the man who put a bullet through my brain And show me that I didn't die in vain Remember me when the crosses are a-burning Remember me when the racists come around. It's, it's, it's right to the Remember point, and I think it, um, it, it really just emphasizes the idea that um, uh, something we've touched on, on on Mike before is that is, is the idea of like so much hinges, like where you stand in America right now hinges on uh, how you feel about the concept of American greatness, whether America yeah. was ever great, whether it needs to be made great again, or whether it can ever be made great for the first time. Right. 
and uh, and that's and that that's a song that I think speaks right to that and the idea that 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 there are these lofty ideals that that we've never quite managed to live up to. Said the naturalized citizen as a Brazilian. Yeah, oh, that's... right. Said the said said the person who's seen America from the outside for a long while. So yeah. oh, that's brilliant. Um, yeah, like like summed it up. I'm like trying to think <laughs> yeah. of something to say, but I'm like, wow, you really summed it up. And it's just it's amazing to include that kind of a perspective in the conversation as well. Well, it, it, it informed a lot of the people, I think, you know, you know, maybe not, maybe not um, the Reverend Dr. King directly, but I think a lot of the people who were there um, mm-hmm. and a lot of, a lot of whites who needed to be mobilized and, mm-hmm. uh, and it's this idea of like easing them into it. Yeah. Like, yeah, yeah. right. Like we, they're not going to react to Mississippi goddamn the way they're going to yes. react to this song. Yes. Um, mm-hmm. And the idea that just, just get them there, just get them to show up right. and, and be open to listening and that, and then, you know, if they, mm-hmm. if they, if that song is what got them to a speech or got them to, you know, go help people register to vote, whatever it is, yeah. yep. whatever it yep. is, it's contributing to the movement. But then that's sort of the thing, right? You got to get people there. You got to get them to show up first. You got to get them there. You gotta, call it organizing, yep. folks. Why it's yep. called organizing? Yeah. yeah. Some people are just sitting back thinking it's not their problem. Right. And then you can say, hey. Aren't you? You don't even say it is your problem. You can say, "Come see this thing," right? And let them come to it in their own way, which is a lot of what the civil rights movement was about. You know? Yeah. Yeah. It wasn't about well, it was... Americans in in this country going and like literally burning down everything as they had every right to do. Well, it was it was a challenge. Um, it, it was, was a challenge about, in coalition to form, yeah. and there were and there were a lot of different issues bubbling at the surface, and 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 it and it led to it caused like tectonic shifts in American partisan politics. Like mm-hmm. there was a whole party that used to be the party of segregation that is now no longer viable in the South, right? Because of the Civil Rights Act. Sure, so. exactly. They're well, trying. <laughs> we'll see. They're trying. They're trying. Um, yeah, with that, we're gonna get to uh, the last song we're gonna play here, uh, and this is. Uh, Kick it to you, Mr. Dowling. Okay, so I wanted to make sure that we brought up Chicago in this mm. whole conversation. Because, um, as Timothy pointed out, that was the city that Dr. King went to and figured it out mm-hmm. about what this whole thing was really all about. Um, Chicago is important because in the antebellum South, you know, after, in, you know, after Reconstruction and everything, like, a lot of... African-Americans looking for a brighter way, a new start, a fresh start, ended up moving west. There's a large westward migration of African-Americans. And a lot of them end up in Chicago, Illinois. Um, Chicago then kind of becomes this place where you get this, like, exorbitant desire for, like, a new blackness, like a progressive blackness, like a wide-open blackness, a middle-class blackness. But it's still a little rough because it's still a little Southern and it's like deep Southern. It's like, so you get like a group like Curtis Mayfield and the Impressions, whose um, you know, historical roots go back to Tennessee, Chattanooga, Tennessee. And all their, the guys in the Impressions, Curtis and uh, Jerry Butler. Uh, let me get the names of the Impressions for you. I can pull them up. They're all important to this because it's not just because people get it confused. Like people think that the Impressions were like, Curtis Mayfield and his friends, but that's really not the case. Yeah. <laughs> so you have uh, Curtis Mayfield, you have Jerry Butler, you have 
Arthur Brooks, Leroy Hudson. Uh, they are a um, and Sam Gooden. Uh, they started in the early in the late fifties and early sixties, just kind of making like doo-wop soul cuts. And then uh, the the big moment of the uh, the march on Washington occurs in nineteen sixty three, and this is a moment for Curtis Mayfield as a songwriter where he truly ascends into like the great songwriting canon of great not just even black songwriters but just songwriters and vocalists of all time. Uh, the first song that really starts this whole thing is a song called People Get Ready, which comes out in 1964. And the thing about it is that it's heavily based in a spiritual tradition. In 1965, they released a cover of Amen. So this is how deeply yeah. religious yeah. Yeah. they are. It's a, lo- it's a lovely little version of that, oh, too. It's, it's just, yeah. phenomenal. Yeah. So, they, so like, it's People Get Ready, there's a train to come in. Like, there's that freedom train, there's that, you know nod towards underground railroad there's that nod mm-hmm. towards so much of black history and it's just a song that you know it's 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 and the, and the thing about it that's tricky and amazing is that it's a gospel inspired ballad but it's time and meter is straight out of contemporary r&b for that mm-hmm. era which is one of the the tricks of curtis at that point and always of curtis is to be able to like take these religious themes and to take this like you know, desire to like praise things to a, a to a very contemporary rhythm and blues space. Um, for people who are you know like also aware of what Curtis Mayfield did, Curtis Mayfield is also the guy behind the song that Kanye West, another Chicago native. Mm-hmm. Interesting uh, that Kanye has come up multiple times in this podcast. Yeah, no, I mean he, he has to. Like Curtis also did all weird. of the cocaine. Well, okay, no, I was going to get towards that. I was going to get towards that because. Here's the thing. Okay, so he does um, the song that, uh, what is it? Uh, Get on up that simple for Touch the Sky. And and that's in 71. In 1972, Curtis Mayfield does the soundtrack for one of the greatest movies. Not just Flaxploitation films, but movies of all time. Superfly. Mm -hmm. And the funny part about Superfly is that Superfly is this movie about a guy who's trying to literally make a million dollar cocaine deal so that he can retire and live with his new girlfriend and start a family, which is the most like aspirational thing to ever sell cocaine for in the history of the world. (laughs) And at this time, Curtis had just released his debut record a year prior that includes songs also like, you know, that are titled things like we people who are darker than blue. Yeah. So he's in a real spot, like everything post 63, with Curtis Mayfield is yeah. like, I am black, I'm proud, and not in that James Brown way where I'm gonna put a big break and I'm gonna, you know, like kick it on the one. I'm gonna create these like anthemic, soulful, hymnal type songs that are like steeped within like the deep soul, spiritual black tradition, and then elevating R&B into that tradition and creating the stuff that just explodes. Yeah. And I mean, the thing about like, to, I mean, Superfly is important in this conversation because he takes things like drug abuse that are ravaging African-American communities yeah. and he makes songs about drug abuse that make you not want to do drugs. Yeah. Like he makes songs that are like, you know, Freddie's Dead, which is a song. If you look at the movie Superfly is about mm. a guy who is a drug dealer who gets murdered. And it's like, astounding because the soul in that song just bleeds through 
So now that I've given you this whole like background and foreground of Curtis Mayfield, we go back to the song that begins it all, mm-hmm. which is this song "People Get Ready," which was a top, which was not a top ten pop song, but it was a top ten R and B song, and it was actually the highest ranked song that Curtis Mayfield and Precious had had, I think, on the pop chart to that point, which says a lot about we were talking about like white folks understanding black music and understanding the civil rights movement in context. And this is one of those times where the song is so powerful that it transcends all of that. And to be so black and so proud and to do something like that, it just speaks volumes. People get ready as a train of coming. You don't need no baggage. You just get on board. All you need is faith to hear the deep. was Jeff Beck. Right. Jeff Beck, Rod Stewart? Yes. Hmm. Which was, it's interesting that the, the the most successful cover of this is by Rod Stewart and it Jeff is, Beck. But, but it also makes If you consider, if you want to put things in specifically like black music and white music, it was the Brits who took mm-hmm. up the cause for blues and all that and, and learned from uh, our culture before we even knew it existed, quite honestly. And, uh, you know, but that version, once you find that, is is clearly supreme. Can I, and can I stand Rod Stewart for just one second, though? Yeah. Do, oh, do, do I, people... not, Rod Stewart does some interesting covers. He does, um, um, I'll think of it in a little while, but one of my favorite singer-songwriters that my dad's band used to play his uh-huh. songs way back when, and I was like, what are you doing with this song, Rod Stewart? Like, this is the... How do you even know about this person? Right. So he's got, you know, he knows what he's doing. Do, do people here know that Do You Think I'm Sexy is stolen from a Brazilian musician? Yes. That we, it's, yeah. that it's from Jorge yeah. Bain? Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. Like, yeah. I think that, okay. the, yeah, Just, I think that. He's a man of the world. Yeah. I think that's he's an appropriator. Many cultures. He really is. He's appropriate from the one culture. No, he really is. Yeah. So I, I think that the, Still doing it too. the coolest thing about, like, Chicago to, to speak to to the modern era is that Chicago is like largely in a lot of ways still dealing with a lot of the same problems that they were dealing with sure. in 1963. And I think that the level of problem that Chicago deals with is the same that it was mm. back then as it is right now. And I think it bespeaks in like a crucible way if you're studying it in like a in tight enclosed space to what is ultimately like the legacy of what Dr. King had left to do. 
Yeah. Um, I yeah. think that, and this is not a, a crazy statement to make. I always feel like Dr. King, uh, by the time he died, he was moving into the anti-war mm-hmm. and class struggles. Yeah. Uh, not that to say that the race struggle was not fr- front and center on his mind. Yeah, they're not. I, I implied earlier they were somehow right. mutually exclusive. Oh. I didn't. I didn't mean to. They're not. No, but they're very much the, intertwined. No, but, but I think it's the fact that he knew that he needed leverage. He needed a victory in one thing in order to push the lever forward on another thing. So pushing forward and winning there, with there's that there's also you know something I've referenced a few times on this podcast there's also the the big bad right you know yeah. there is there you know and and as people you can't fight everything at once you have you have to pick and choose your social justice right well I would I would and and I would uh, just to just to maybe give a different slightly different take on that i don't think you can tell the history of capitalism without slavery yeah right right Right. there's there's no such thing as capitalism without slavery for for like for like the majority of the time that capitalism has been a thing i was also (laughs) yeah Yeah. also Mm -hmm. yeah i also wanted to include in this conversation about music and dr king and where he was at at the time of his assassination by the time that 1968 rolls around black music is like incredible like every great black artist is making socially relevant, yeah. social justice mm-hmm. music about black At people the same and black time as rights. The Beatles are peaking, right? Well, the Beatles. Oh. No, but what I'm saying is like. Is like everybody is looking at the Beatles, but at the, if you actually look at what was going on right. here, it was like it was actually the superior work, right? But it was the more soulful work. Yeah, it was the more meaningful work. Right. It was. It was the more. Uh, I don't say longevity wise was because they're gonna be listening to the Beatles in like four hundred years on different planets. Right. So, but at the <laughs> yeah. same time, you get stuff like James Brown is doing "Say It Loud, I'm Black and I'm exactly. Proud" That's in 1967. Saying. That's the thing. It's like so when you have these Counter, leaders. Counterpoint three eleven did not exist yet. So. <laughs> Jesus. Sorry. Oh, yeah, I love sorry. You. Just, uh, just, no, just, 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 so, like, by the time of his assassination, he's got every black person on his, like, on his team. Mm-hmm. Like, all the black people of, like, note and meaning. Even the Black Panthers are, like, willing to, like, understand that, like, Dr. King, like, is doing some, some relevant righteous stuff. Mm, so we're not yeah. going to get in his yeah. way. We're not going to, like, stand against his movement. And so when you have that level of pop cultural support, if you want to take a step to the left and, like, get this win over here. Yep. And then come back with that power and put it on top of like James Brown, yeah, was like, hey, I might support like you know I might support Richard Nixon, but I also think that black empowerment is a thing. Mm-hmm. That's and it's like, but that's the thing. He's like, I support Richard Nixon, but I also believe that black I support this man because he wants to keep my black money in my black pocket, mm-hmm. and that's a crazy thing. And then you have like people like the Impressions, and you have all of Motown at this point, like. To the point where in 1970, finally you get what's going on because Barry Gordy can't 
Yeah. Turn a blind eye to what everybody around him is saying, yelling, and doing. And mm-hmm. that's the thing. That's the, the tragedy of Dr. King. Well, and that's what's interesting that. to think about that album in the, in the context of the aftermath of Dr. King's assassination. Because... You know, Marvin Gaye was doing... He was just being Marvin Gaye, and then all of a sudden, like, shit broke. Right. Like, he was... I mean, because he was a Motown session musician, too, so he would have been there when the riots happened in Detroit. Right. And everything went haywire, and, you know, like, literally the neighborhood surrounding the Motown studio is in flames. Mm -hmm. And there's actual riots occurring next to, like, you know, this iconic structure. Mm -hmm. And they're, like, you know, and they're letting the musicians get out safely. And they're not, like, throwing stones and rocks at their cars. They're not throwing stones and rocks at their buildings. Yeah. It's crazy. So, I mean, it's a, it's a thing to think about. When I think about the legacy of Dr. King, when you think about it musically, is that one of the great victories of Dr. King's life was that he unified every black musician yep. on one side. So it was a point where you could turn on black radio and there wasn't somebody saying, like, the most, like, righteous and revolutionary super empowered statement about black people. And this was at a time where like prior you had love songs and comedy songs and Motown's entire early history being about making songs for white kids to buy black music. And then you get to this point where it's like, everybody has a fist up. Everybody has natural hair. Everybody is like, okay, we're doing it. Yep. And then April 4th, 1968. And you're just like, and again, when you think about it, like as music, as like a guide of culture, the culture was there. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Every musician, even the guys in, even the guys in San Francisco were smoking dope. Find the family stone. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Still exists and are in that tradition because at the front of it is Sylvester Stewart. Who's like, I'm going to be righteous too. I might have purple streaks in my hair and a big giant blonde <laughs> Afro, but I'm down for this too. Right, right. And it's astounding. Like, and then April fourth, nineteen sixty-eight. And 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 I and and I think the 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 point I come back to often when I think about um, politics or social movements or whatever is is when a group of people say they're oppressed. An important question is how many of their leaders have been gunned down in public in their prime. And if the answer is none, then that group is probably not very oppressed white right. men. <laughs> yeah. Um, but 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 it's 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 just absolutely a fact that you had a time in the sixties where where basically anyone who stepped forward as a leader and who invited that that mantle, not not invited it, but sort of but like but acquiesced to it and then conducted themselves in a way befitting a leader was uh, was violently uh, gunned down, mm-hmm. um, and uh, it's just it's just so you know we live in we live in turbulent times, but um, but but not at a time when a uh, Kamala Harris or an Elizabeth Warren or uh, Kristen Gillibrand or you know like yeah. like they're not they're not being assassinated in front of us um, on live TV. Um, there there's plenty of other violence. To go around, yeah, um, and 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 that's not. I'm not trying to sort of minimize the the, the plight of social issues today. I'm just. I, it, it just. It's just so astonishing to me to think back to that to that time frame and and 
Um, and a lot of us are too young to actually, you know, have, have been there, but, but, but like, but like assassination, <laughs> I was, I wasn't so, speaking for your cats, man. No, but. it's, I was going to say, how old do you think I am? There's a video, <laughs> there's a video on, on YouTube, uh, again, Hezekiah news and views, my guy. I always, I, this is like the second time I mentioned Hezekiah's mm-hmm. channel on, uh, yeah, you know Hezekiah's oh, you channel. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you mentioned him last time. Uh, of course yeah, I did, because yeah, Hezekiah's channel is yeah. the best. So, it's, and so he has this this video up from CBS from 1993 that I just watched about 1968. And it does a really great job, because it's like 25 years after it. So everybody's still kind of like still relatively young-ish mm-hmm. who had survived that era. And when they do like the timeline, and it's like Dr. King is shot only like after Lyndon Johnson's like, I will ni- neither seek nor accept the, you know, mm-hmm. the, the nomination of the Democratic Party for president. Then after that, you get Bobby Kennedy that summer. Mm-hmm. So only like and, and the country still doesn't like think about it. The country physically has not resurrected from the King riots. Because Eighth Street, Northeast Washington D.C., yep. didn't resurrect from the King riots until twenty, you know, twenty-five years after that, until roughly around nineteen ninety-three. Curiously yeah. enough, right. so the country is still smoldering. And Bobby gets shot in L.A., which is you know Watts is in L.A., so the Watts riots occurred, and yeah. that was a thing. And it's like, you know, and then there's like the Kills King riots and then there's the riots in 72. So it's like, there's like stuff. There's like violence and anger. And then another person is murdered on top of that, like yeah. in cold blood. And again, to think about it, like musically, right? So like we just, we talked about Ab's album last year. We talked to Ab a bunch down here. And um, the answer to Marvin Gaye's What's Going On is an album called there's a riot going on <laughs> right. by right. Slide the Family Stone, right. which speaks directly again to what we're talking about. Like, I think it can't be it can't be underscored enough to like when you listen to this music to understand like the context of the era in which it was created. Like some of the greatest, most brilliant minds of civil rights mm-hmm. ever, like in the history of the universe, existed and were shot in front of our eyes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's like, oh my God. And to create in that milieu, with that force being put upon you. Exactly. Is incredible. Exactly. And uh, I guess that's the whole point of what we want to talk about. Mm-hmm. That's it. It's, it's, you're, if you're listening to this now, it is MLK Day. Hopefully you'll listen to it. And uh, hopefully you. Took the past what uh, probably two hours to uh, listen to us. Listen, more importantly, listen to the songs and, and reflect like uh, what what it means. Um, I would guess ninety percent of you don't have off because and hopefully those who do are doing something of service today. I had to pay to have, I had to pay yeah. to have off, uh, which is abhorrent because. Martin Luther King Jr. was a uh, not just a shining beacon of civil rights movement of of what humans should strive for, and it is important that we celebrate him uh, not just today, if you're listening to this today, but 
Uh, pretty much every day. Do you get Do you get Columbus Day? No. Okay. Well, at least you know. Yeah. At least there's some. I was gonna say we don't. We don't. Nobody we don't. does. No. No. Nobody should. I'm just right. It's the modern <laughs> capitalist right. system. But what we're talking about is is righteousness yeah. and and doing the right thing and 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 sadly paying the price, uh, which which Martin Luther King Jr. did, but uh, not only. His spirit lived on because his spirit simply moved through him. I hope that some of the stuff we talked about tonight made it clear that this sentiments, this idea of of civil justice, of equality, existed, and he just sort of channeled it. And you all can do it. Yeah, and, and that's and, really and, that's really the only point. And it, and it could be as you know, just it could be as little as reading "Letter from a Birmingham Jail" or yeah. some of his early speeches where he talks about the three kinds of love. I mean, there's 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 so much to mine, and he gave he he gave us he gave us so many words and so many yeah. thoughts, and uh, and they're they're easily accessible. Mm-hmm. So take a minute today, reflect. You have if you've listened to this, but. Uh... Thank you guys for coming down here. We're gonna we're gonna go out, we're gonna go out on a Bayard Rustin song, and, and we're just gonna leave it at that because uh, it's sort of a modern take on that. But uh, yeah, see you guys. This is fun. Yeah.